Tim Scott ready to get in. Clarence Thomas in the dock and Joe Biden issues a moderate Title IX rule. Or did he? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry. I'm joined as always by the dominator, Dominic Pino, Madeline, Maddie Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course... Listening to a National Review podcast, our sponsors this episode are Moink and the Competitive Enterprise Institute. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, it is happening. Tim Scott shows every indication of getting into the race, forming a super PAC and uh, vindicating the conventional wisdom that last couple of weeks has been Mike Pompeo, probably not going to run. Tim Scott, yeah, probably is going to run. Are you feeling Scott Mentum? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. I, I, listen, I don't, I still believe this is a two man race fundamentally. But, you know, there's always the possibility of, you know, nuclear mutual assured destruction between DeSantis and Trump. Uh, and so there should be a couple of people uh, running as dark horse candidates. And Tim Scott's one of them. Uh, Tim Scott's been talked up as a potential candidate since at least his 2020 uh, speech at the National Republican Convention, which was charming and uh introduced himself to a lot of americans outside of south carolina and kind of gave a very relatable life story an admirable one that connected to his political identity um you know tim scott is like a very optimistic pro-entrepreneurial classical conservative but he is also uh, charismatic and African American, and mm-hmm. the party has long desired to have uh, a black champion, right? The, like the party base. I, I mean, it was one thing I've, I always noticed, which was that when I went to CPAC, you know, 15 years ago, um, figures in the party, even like you know, you'd see buttons for Condi Rice to run, mm-hmm. yep. and it is, it those, is were, those were the days, MBD. I, that's when this was a that's when this was a respectable, decent party. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm, but I'm saying that this was, you know, CPAC is the base of the base, right? Like, I mean, this yeah. is, and what it, what I learned from that was that conservatives are very sensitive to the accusation of being racist. They're very sensitive to the accusation that conservatism is nothing more than the apologetics of white privilege. And so they are triply enthusiastic about non-white candidates, right? Yeah. Um, in, in general, because it's like we're putting it in your face libs. This, this, the creed we believe in is accessible to everyone. And so Tim Scott is that, um, is a very good, um, and very charming uh, exemplar of the conservative creed. Um, he doesn't have a he, he doesn't have the kind of populist streak in him though that I see as necessary, mm-hmm. uh, and that I see as a big advantage for both DeSantis and Trump. But we don't know how the race will shake out. I wish him luck. Yeah. So the upside, Maddie, for Scott, it's. It's impossible to find any audience that has heard a speech by Tim Scott that hasn't been wowed. I, I mean, he, he is just a, a very energetic and charismatic speaker with a great 
personal story. And to MBD's point about conservatives being desperate for African-American champions, Herman Cain had a, a, a surge when, when he ran, you know, a, a pizza guy, you know, who never, never held elected office. Ben Carson, great, great personal story. You know, there are inspirational movies about him, N- never held office, had, had a big, big surge in, in 2016. It's easy to forget with, with all the Trump stuff. So if those guys can surge, and here you have Tim Scott, who's been an office holder, pretty accomplished politician, and is a, a better speaker than those guys, you've you, you got to think there's some, some upside there. Yeah, I mean, what's, what's not to like? He's obviously a sincere uh, believer in America. He's a, a sincere Christian. Certainly those are, are two things that you can say he has over uh, some of his opponents. But I, I do think the, the difficulty he faces is just that, unfortunately, all the normal things you'd think would commend a candidate don't seem to apply right now. Um, mm-hmm. And as Michael says, he lacks that electability. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or, or just just being a, a decent human being. <laughs> who's who's uh, I mean, he does he does have uh, like definite advantages. He's, he's a strong fundraiser. I think he pulled in over fifty one million during his last term. Um, he's as you as you've mentioned, he's really great at sort of fostering goodwill in the party. Um, he has a great agenda that that should have populist appeal. Honestly, he's he emphasises social mobility, school choice. Um, he had his opportunity zone initiative. You know, trying to get money into uh, communities that are struggling, and these are these are all great um, initiatives. I just don't think that this Trump factor, the disruptor who's going to come in and shake everything up, like he doesn't have that and that seems to be Trump's major um selling point just now I mean I don't know if you the the Trump uh, interview he did with Tucker Carlson was just a reminder of just how unpredictable this guy is I mean you saw it on Tucker Carlson's face every every other thing Trump said he was like wait what you you like Gavin Newsom like really <laughs> okay <laughs> you know I mean Tim Scott's almost too he's too predictable and mm-hmm. that's just not what our political moment is uh, crying out for right now, unfortunately, because I like him. He's going to raise a lot of money. Um, he, he, he already has a nice nest egg. And a friend was pointing out to me that, that Herschel Walker, in part, not entirely, you know, Herschel is a, a celebrity, former star running back, um, but in part because he is an African-American Republican, I think raised $70 million. Uh, I, I, this guy was telling me more than any other San- Senate candidate this cycle, of course, there was a runoff, and it seemed as though you know maybe the, the fate of the Senate would depend on that on that race. But a lot of it was this kind of phenomenon we've been discussing. So, Dominic, the um, <clears throat> following on from what Maddie was saying, kind of the downside to Skim Tim Scott, like the hope and the optimism is great, but you're a little uh, at sea. Okay, w- what are we supposed to be hopeful? About what? What? What is our our four point five point plan to to get out of this rut the country is in? So so this this hope isn't just um, uh, airy and unconnected to anything that's really going on in the country that justifiably has a lot of people alarmed and upset. Yeah, what I would be hopeful about with Tim Scott is um, the uh, return of the Republican Senate majority. I think he's an exceptional senator. I like him a lot. Um, as uh, as you know, as as Maddie said, I think uh, she described him well. Great conservative, uh, optimistic, knows what he's doing, cares about getting things right. That's the kind of person I want in the Senate. 
that's the kind of person I want shaping and leading the Senate GOP conference. I think we have a problem in our politics where we think that every good politician needs to run for president. I've said this before uh, about other people, and I, I think Scott is another great example. You know, the uh, Mitch McConnell has led the Senate GOP conference for a long time. In general, has done a good job, but he's getting old. He's going to need to uh, move on at some point pretty soon, and there's going to be a shakeup at the top in uh, Republican uh, Senate leadership. And I'd like to see Tim Scott advance there. Uh, back a couple months ago, uh, Janet Yellen uh, testified to the Senate about abortion and made this grotesque rationalization of abortion on economic grounds. In front of Tim Scott, a uh, African-American man who grew up in poverty, and he did such a good job of just completely dismembering um, uh, Janet Yellen's argument. Uh, and, and, and that's the kind of thing I want to see more of. And, you know, his point about being a great fundraiser, that's another great asset to have in the Senate, where, as we just noted, you know, these Senate races are getting really expensive. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I want him to be able to bring in money for uh, statewide candidates across the country in that capacity. So, again, I, I liked him, Scott, a lot. I think he'd be a great president. Uh, I just, you know, I, I share Maddie's skepticism about his ability to actually uh, actually win. And uh, I, I, I really would like to see him keep advancing in, in the Senate and be there for a long time. So, Dominic, it says a lot about your passions and interests that uh, an exchange with Janet Yellen is is among the top of your. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, I, I mean, look, he's he's the ranking member of the Senate Banking Committee now, uh, and he's taking over he's taking over there for for Pat Toomey, who did a great job from the minority in the Senate of delivering some really great wins uh, for conservatives, including you know defeating the nomination of Sarah Bloom Raskin for Federal Reserve when these climate uh, climate extremists, um, you know, defeating her nomination. That was, that was done, you know, through really intelligent Senate maneuvering and really caring about how that stuff works. And so, um, you know, his position there on, on Senate banking committee, I, I, you know, that that's, that's really important for the conservative movement. And, uh, I, I would hate to see that get distracted from, uh, on a failed presidential campaign. Uh, all well taken. So, MBD, where are you before we move on just on 2024 in general here? It, it seems as though the, the indictment has been a brilliant wedge issue for the Democrats. Wedge issues are talked a lot about in the, in the 80s and in the 90s. Uh, crime was a great one where Republicans would say, we need to lock up criminals. And, you know, 70% of the country is like, yeah, of course we do. And then 30% of the country, the Democratic base would say, no, we can't, we can't do that. So you got a great wedge. And you got this wedge working here uh, between uh, how primary voting Republicans uh, consider Trump and how the general public does with astonishing numbers on both sides yeah. of this equation, right? So Trump in, in um, one poll, I think it was at 58. There's one from his pollster, John McLaughlin, who I, I love, been friends with uh, forever, had 62. We haven't seen anything that high, but it's high, you know, and, and it's, it's so high, it's, it's higher than, than anyone who's ever lost a nomination before. <laughs> and then you look at the general election numbers. There was an ABC News poll. Maybe it's an, an outlier on the other side, but has had his approval. Now, this wasn't a, a huge hit, but down to 25. It was only 29 prior to that, but down to 25 <laughs> Percent. So, so you, you get this uh, scenarios working out that seems 
I underline that because you never know how events are going to play out. But ideal for Democrats where Trump has become much more formidable in the nomination battle and at the same time a weaker general election candidate. Right. I absolutely agree that independents are done with Donald Trump, right? Like that's, that is an overwhelming message. And in fact, like independents and a substantial portion of Democrats say they're done with Joe Biden, right? Like he's too old. They don't want him to run again. They don't want a rematch of 2020. Um, I am not as convinced that the indictments are going to help Trump. They, they Mm -hmm. certainly put him back in the news, but when you get these poll, this polling about, Donald Trump and the Republican party, um, there is a tribal effect that kicks in where people answer the telephone or, or the, the survey, and they don't want to look like they're betraying their side. And so they say, yeah, I'm still with Donald Trump, but that doesn't mean when the, the other option is Ron DeSantis, they might not go for Ron DeSantis, right? Like, right. so there's a difference between like, you know, Donald Trump's approval rating among Republicans and what will happen in a contested primary, especially one where if in the first one, in the, in the first contest in Iowa, uh, it looks like a coin toss, right? Like there's that's that suddenly changes everything, Mm -hmm. uh, for every Republican after that. Cause then you have to say, then you might have to look at questions like, Hey, which one of these guys is more electable in a general election? And then, you start getting serious about making a calculation. So I, I I think people are writing off challengers to Donald Trump way too easily and way too early uh, in this process. And um, again, I think the legal miasma around Trump could over time begin to look like an electoral millstone, even to Republicans. Yeah. Uh, and so um It'll be yeah. interesting to see if he'd get similar bounces from subsequent indictments or, or whether a little bit of an exhaustion would kick right. in. But I totally agree with you. I think the conventional wisdom now is way, 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 way too down on, on Ron DeSantis. Maybe it was too cheery, you know, two months ago or whatever it was right. or the part of the year. But, it, you know, you have, have pieces now. Oh, he's, he's already blown it. He's getting in too late. Well, he's supposed to do abandon his state, you know, before a legislative session to campaign around the country. It's just, if, if he's going to win, it's, the reason is not going to be because he announced in June rather than, or if he's going to lose, the reason is not going to be because he announced in June rather than April. Yeah. And the other thing is, I, I think one dynamic that's not played up enough yet, but could be very soon is, uh, Donald Trump won the Republican nomination in 2016 by combining populist Republicans with economic moderates and then adding evangelicals by making this profound promise about judges and doing it in a way that was so explicit uh, no one else had ever done it before. The dynamic is shaping up where he probably still has a lot of those economic moderates and those populists, but it looks more and more like the Donald Trump camp wants to attack DeSantis from the right on social issues like abortion. And that may kill, that may hurt Donald Trump among evangelicals who were Mm -hmm. a key part of his, his primary coalition, not just 
his general yeah. election coalition. So yeah, attacking him from the left on entitlements and attacking him from the left potentially on a, on abortion. Yeah, and, and, and on COVID. And, and on COVID. And on COVID and potentially on trans issues. I mean, Donald Jr. went out on some podcast this week and said he was a liberal on transgender issues. Mm-hmm. So yeah. like there's there's a lot there's a lot of dynamics left to play out. So Dominic, exit question first to you and stipulate it that, that you want him back in the the Senate, but let's assume he's actually getting getting in. Who would you rather be in the twenty twenty four race, Tim Scott or Nikki Haley? Uh, I would probably rather be Tim Scott. I think Tim Scott, uh, just from the perspective of uh, neither of them are going to win the nomination, and Tim Scott will probably have a better career ahead of him after, uh, in terms of uh, uh, you know returning to the Senate or, or doing something else. Maddie Kearns, Tim Scott, or Nikki Haley. I'd say Tim Scott. I think he outshines her in terms of uh, charisma. MBD. Uh, Tim Scott for sure. Um, yeah, t- uh, Tim Scott. I think is just going to attract more money. He's going to attract more immediate support. Have more immediate rationale. And there is a possibility that. Tim Scott's fundamental optimism will fit a mood change in America, right? Like that, that seven years ago, Donald Trump could say, I will wear the mantle of anger. And a lot of Republicans were like, where is our Reaganite optimism? Uh." But like, actually now maybe America might be in the mood for like putting off the mantle of anger and trying something different. So yeah, for that reason, Tim Scott. Yeah, I agree. Tim Scott, I think he'll have a moment. You know, I, I would be skeptical that's going to work out for him ultimately, but he'll uh, likely have a moment. With that, let's pause and hear from our good friends at Moink. And one thing there's kind of a bipartisan consensus about is that we are too dependent on China economically and need to make some moves at least towards decoupling. Did you know? by the way, that 60% of U.S. pork production comes from one company owned by the Chinese, and their hogs are given something called ractopamine, which is banned in 160 countries, including China. Yet, you find it in your grocery aisle every single day. There's a better way. I'd like to tell you about Moink. That's Moo plus Oink. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door. Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did, and as a result, Moink meat tastes like it should, because the family farm does it better. The Moink difference is a difference you can taste, and you can feel good knowing you're helping family farms stay financially independent, too. You choose the meat. Delivered in every box, like ribeyes, to chicken breasts, to pork chops, to salmon fillets, and much more. Plus, you can cancel any time. We love Moink in the Lowry household, and there's a reason why almost everyone on this podcast has done a Moink read at one point or another, because we all love Moink. Shark Tank host Kevin O'Leary called Moink's bacon the best bacon he's ever tasted, and Ring Doorbell founder Jamie Simimoff jumped at the chance to invest in Moink. Plus, they guarantee you'll say, oink, oink, I'm just so happy I got moinked. I know I do, and you will, too. Keep American farming going by signing up at moinkbox.com slash editors right now. And listeners of the show, get free bacon in your first box. It's the best bacon you'll ever taste, but for a limited time, spelled M-O-I-N-K, box. 
dot com slash editors. That's moikbox.com slash editors. Please check it out. So Dominic, this has been true since his confirmation and true periodically the, the 30 years or whatever it is now that he's been on the court. We have a Clarence Thomas controversy. ProPublica did the story about uh, Harlan uh, Crow, big real estate developer down in Texas, a conservative philanthropist. If you are uh, active in conservative politics, it's, it's very likely that you know Harlan Crow, full disclosure, NR, the uh, National Review Institute has done events with Harlan Crow. He has this amazing uh, parliamentary style debate facility down there in Dallas. And we've, we've had great interconservative debates, great right-left debates. But he uh, hosted Clarence Thomas on these um, vacations that are vacations sort of beyond the reach of uh, uh, the rest of us who, who might uh, pile the family into a car and drive to the beach three hours away. These were much nicer vacations than that. And the allegation that doesn't really withstand scrutiny when you look in, in detail at the rules, the, the allegation underlying this is, well, one, that uh, Harlan was seeking influence with Clarence Thomas uh, and his work on the court. And two, Thomas failed to disclose this stuff, especially trips on private jets when he should have. So first, I'd just say the idea that Clarence Thomas is a conservative because he is getting vacations from Harlan Crow is just completely ridiculous. I mean, the idea that there's any sort of influence buying here is is pretty, pretty dumb. Uh, I think, uh, you know, he's Clarence Thomas has shown himself to be uh, very consistently conservative his entire career on the court. And uh, he didn't need any encouragement outside uh, to come to that conclusion. Uh, that, that being said, you know, like you said, it doesn't seem like he broke the law here, um, but you can do things uh, that are still that maybe you shouldn't do, even if you're not breaking the law. Um, I think it's possible from a perspective of uh, uh, needing to avoid giving the other side ammunition. Uh, this this might have been handled better by uh, Justice Thomas. Um, but of course, the left is always out to get him. They're always out to get his wife. Um they're always uh, looking for ways to attack him. I mean, you, there are so many stories about him specifically um, and, and not about any other justice on the court. Does, does anyone even know the spouses of any other Supreme Court justice? I mean, they never get it never gets talked about. It's just him. It's because he's a conservative. It's because he's been there for a long time. And it's because uh, he's been he's been a champion for uh, for originalism. They don't like him. And, and, and they do this kind of stuff. So, um, you know, like I said, from, from a perspective of not wanting to give the other side ammunition, um, he should probably reconsider the way he does this stuff in the future and, 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 uh, and, and maybe should have handled it better in the past. But uh, it, it can also be blown out of proportion by people who are out to get him no matter what he does. Yeah, Maddie, I think the, the thing that, that his critics can't find is like one instance, whenever has Clarence Thomas been the least bit inconsistent on anything? You know, he's like the, the least um, influ influenceable justice on the court. You know, he's consistent, arguably, uh, to, to a, a fault. Um, so, the, so the idea he was going to be bought off by these trips, I, I agree with Dominic, is completely ridiculous. But... You know, these rules on disclosure have been tightened up. That seems appropriate 
you know, if there's, if there's nothing wrong with this stuff, you, you should be perfectly comfortable uh, telling people about it. And that just seems, you know, transparency 101. And the rules have been tightened up recently. And Thomas, in his statement on the matter, said, obviously, going forward, I'll abide by those rules. Yeah, I mean, I think you could only really make the argument that Crow was trying to exert influence or successfully exert his influence through these gifts or whatever you want to call them if he had a case before the court. I mean, that's where there would be a conflict of interest. That's where you would have to disclose a relationship. And that's just not the case. There's He, he has absolutely nothing to gain um, from from having a, a, a friendship or, or uh, being generous toward Clarence Thomas. Um, I mean, I, th- I think this is like obviously done in such bad faith and it's clear just the way the report is written that it's done in bad faith. faith. I mean, you have a very overwritten, um, lots of adjectives in there saying, talking about these luxury trips and exclusive retreats and you know, lavishing and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, but like, where is the offence? Yes, he has a very, very wealthy friend. Um, maybe that grosses you out, but that's there's nothing objectionable from a legal standpoint with having wealthy friends. The other thing is that the ProPublica report fails to make clear what you just mentioned, which is that these rules were only recently changed. So you can't just apply them retroactively. He didn't disclose them in the past because you didn't need to disclose them. He said, now that you do, happy to do that. That's fine. Um, I mean, the, the more recent uh, revelation has been something to do with uh, a, a purchase that Crow's company made of of a former Thomas resident or Thomas's family home. I think his mother was living there at some point. But again, it's not actually clear and the, the journalists don't seem able to cite the specific violation. What they do is they have on these um, cherry-picked ethicists who, who say, yes, well, this seems very like it would be a violation. And you think, well, show show where that happened. Show where, um, what, what law did he break? And he, he obviously didn't. It's in bad faith. And I think this is just the, the latest of many anti-Clarence Thomas uh, stories. Yeah, another thing that always co- comes up whenever Harlan Crow is in the news, it came up in 2016 when he held a fundraiser for Marco Rubio, is that he has a couple paintings by Hitler. So this is always made made out like he's a Nazi, and that's why he has an interest in, in Hitler's art, where he has this amazing collection of memorabilia and art, you know, one or two paintings from Hitler, which obviously has historical interest, you know, but... Uh, long ago copies of the Magna Carta. Uh, I'm kind of I'm making this up, but you know, original Norman Rockwells portraits of the uh, the founders. Um, it's an it's an amazing, uh, amazing stuff. But MBD, I gather that you might be a little uh, more down on this whole uh, story than, than the rest of us. Uh, I don't know if I'm more down. I mean, I don't think I don't think they've caught him doing something over which he should be contemplating resignation in disgrace um, or anything illegal or that he's done anything illegal. I do agree with Dominic. He should probably disclose these things more, more fully. He shouldn't be embarrassed about them. Uh, Failure to disclose it makes it look worse or makes it at least appear somehow suspicious. Um, Yeah. He's not, He's not influenceable, though. I mean, um, you know, there's there's always been these conspiracy theories that somehow, like, uh, 
oh, well, his wife is an activist, therefore he's not going to rule this way or that on um, a case. But in fact, he just has a, a very consistent, you know, radical judicial philosophy that uh, has antecedents going back to the founding of the country, right? And um, he's ungainsayable that way. Um, I Like, there is a... a there is a blessed stubbornness to Thomas that makes him incorruptible. Yeah, it's uh, like a Thomas way. Thomas Soul type in that that way, and clearly it's part of his character uh, inherently. But the the excoriating experience he had with confirmation hearings, if anything, ma- made him even more this way. I mean, he wasn't going to go through that, and then it's just like, okay, I'll be a weather vane for, for what yeah. my friends want. <laughs> and, and and the social dynamic here is like, yes, Harlan Crow has millions and millions of dollars but the real thing is the, the real dynamic here is harlan crow wants to get guys like harlan crow want to get near guys like clarence thomas not to influence them but because clarence thomas has real historical stature uh in and it was going to go down as a major figure in american history and entrepreneurs successful ones they want to be near that kind of glory um, more so than I think Thomas mm-hmm. feels the need to hang around with billionaires. Um, yeah, though also, he's happy to do so. Also, I just add, you know, I, I've, I'm, I'm not friends with Clarence Thomas, but he is delightful company. You see this in little clips of him outside the court, you know, big <laughs> belly laugh. Was it Sonia Sotomayor that said at some uh, forum just how delightful he is? To be around. Yes. Let's, let's take your point at the end there, MBD, and make it the exit question. So, Dominic Pino, Clarence Thomas will be remembered as a morally compromised figure or a pioneering historic conservative jurist. Well, I'm remembered by whom? I mean, he's already a compromised moral figure in the eyes of the left. He has been since he came to the court. Um, but uh, uh, I think, obviously, he's... Um, an influential jurist. And I think eventually um, uh, legal scholars will have to just recognize just because of the length of his tenure and, um, and just the number of opinions and dissents that he's written, they'll have to recognize that he was uh, influential and, uh, and, and made a meaningful difference in the direction of uh, the way the court system works in this country. Maddie. Yeah, I agree, both depending on who you're talking about, but I don't think this particular episode will be remembered at all. MBD? Yeah, he'll be remembered as a jurist. I mean, and and this will be remembered, the Scalia-Thomas-Alito will be remembered as the the three greatest conservative jurists in the history of the country, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I take Dominic's point, you know, a lot depends on who we're talking about, who's doing the Remembering, but I think the 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 latter, um, the uh, in, the incredible uh, influence of his work is is what's going to win out, and in, in terms of uh, his legacy and how he's remembered over the medium to long term. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor. This episode, dear listeners, I want to tell you about a new podcast from our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. It's called Free the Economy, and it's about how we can all be happier, healthier, and wealthier in a world with less government control, from legalizing the gig economy to the perils of ESG and what true diversity in the workplace looks like each week. 
CEI's Free the Economy podcast brings you up to speed on news you can use and welcomes experts in their field to have an honest and candid conversation about how these policies and more shape our economy and society. America has the greatest economy in the world, but it could be even stronger if we embraced a free society where innovation and entrepreneurship are encouraged and not shackled with bureaucratic controls. Check out Free the Economy wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org slash free the economy. I'll say it one more time, cei.org slash free the economy. So Maddie, we have uh, long been an anticipating or dreading this draft rule on Title IX that the Biden administration has come out with. And the spin is that uh, th- this is kind of a, a moderate a document. In fact, he's been getting attacked by the likes of AOC and various trans a- advocacy organizations. Title IX, of course, is the um, uh, statute dating from 1972 that says you have to have uh, equal access on the basis of sex. Very quickly became primarily about women's sports and maintaining and protecting women's sports. And what the, the, the rule purports to do is take this measured approach where no, you can't have a total prohibition on trans athletes that is too sweeping and arbitrary, but you can have narrowly tailored specific prohibitions. So what's, what's wrong with that gloss on this draft rule? Yeah, so what, what they've done is uh, strategic in that they've explicitly said that you can't have this, what they describe as a one-size-fits-all rule banning uh, so-called transgender athletes, but they also don't give the left what they wanted with the one-size-fits-all permission uh, for so-called transgender athletes. This is actually not new. The, the um, Biden administration has, has kind of allowed for um, these caveats, but it's, it's very much historically it's been in the fine print. Even the Obama administration in 2016 had in its dear colleague letter a, a sentence very far down um, saying, you know, in certain circumstances when safety or fairness or I think how it's defined in this uh, in the current rule is important educational objective is at stake you can possibly perhaps make the case for an exception yeah it has has to substantially advance an important educational objective right which is absolutely ludicrous when you consider that the entire educational objective of title IX was equal opportunity for women and girls because clearly (laughs) clearly allowing males into women's sports in any context is just uh, an assault of that objective. The The reason I think that um, they've done this now, though, they've, they've highlighted this, and, and rather than put it in the fine print, they've put it right up top, is they have, it is a recognition that, that this is not popular, that um, saying, yeah, anyone who wants to identify any way can participate is against public opinion. So there's there's a definite attempt to stake out uh, at least a more moderate appearance. But the reality is it's just a total cop-out. I mean, what this will end up doing in practice is it will deter schools from ever using this exception because the burden of proof is on them. So, and, and, and it's, it'll be arbitrary that how it's applied. So you will have to, if you want to exclude a male um from your your female sports team, you will have to make a case for why this uh, th- this needs to happen. What what educational objectives at stake, and then that will have to go before the Department of Education, and then they will review it, and then whoever is working there will decide whether or not that's fair. 
it's this this is just going to mean that in practice you just have males on female sports teams because people want a quiet life they don't want to go through that hassle and there's no guarantee there's great legal uncertainty um and it, it's it's also it, it really just undermines itself because if you can if you can concede that there are circumstances in which uh the sex is relevant to this discussion why isn't it always relevant why are you allowing males into female sports period um so i, th- I think the administration is talking out of both sides of its mouth i think that um it's it's not progress and we shouldn't uh, take it as a win uh it just shows that they're they're on the back foot and they're trying to they're struggling to make sense of 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 what to do yeah it's a little bit like the the obama administration letter on title nine and due process and, and sexual harassment and sexual assault cases you know it's just oh we're just making this suggestion you know but everyone knows what they're doing and no one wants to deal with the consequences if, if they run afoul of it and th- this rule in the final version will will get uh, almost certainly tightened up, then the enforcement regime will tighten it up further. And if that's not enough, you'll have the advocacy groups suing to, to make it even more stringent. So you're absolutely right. Most people, unless you're highly, highly motivated, are going to say, let's not bother. Let's just let uh, males compete against females. Um, MBD, you know, there, there's a lot of competition, but I would argue this is the worst of the Biden executive orders, because what what they've done last year, they redefined the statute without any uh, input from Congress or Congress amending it, which is what should have happened, to say on the basis of sex actually means sexual orientation and gender identity, when obviously in in 1972, no one in Congress or Richard Nixon thought thought sex uh, meant gender identity. I mean, that's just a notion that's come, come into fashion in the last five years or so. And now they're taking that and using it to create this uh, massive, detailed, intrusive regulatory regime that's going to apply to every educational institution in the country that gets federal funding. Yeah, well, I mean, if if, uh, Justice Gorsuch could do it in the Bostock ruling, I'm, I'm not sure why the Biden administration would feel constrained by the language of the 1970s. Um in rewriting uh sex as gender identity um yeah this is among i i would say it's among the worst things too because it is it is going because it's getting the executive branches imprimatur under a democrat it's going to give huge cover to everyone in professional organizations, whether they be either sports leagues or medical boards to conform their, uh, policies to the most, uh, you know, advanced or whatever you may call them, or most regressive, um, pro transgender ideology out there, uh, and try not to go backward from it. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, if you're a moderate Democrat and you're giving this the AOK, um, the effect it's going to have through multiple institutions at different levels of society will be massive. So Dominic, uh, my apologies to you. I do not mean to slight by saying the Title IX thing is the worst Biden executive order. Uh, I, I don't want to um, scoop by how terrible the electric vehicle executive order is, which maybe you think is 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 worse, but is is certainly very bad what's going on with this one 
Oh, they're all bad, Rich. They're all bad. There's, uh, we'll never run out of, uh, you know, we, we could have, you know, angels dancing on the head of a pin kind of arguments about which one is the worst, uh, till the end of time. But I think, uh, yeah, this, this electric vehicle order, um, it comes from the EPA and the EPA wants 67% of all new car sales in the United States to be electric vehicles by 2032. Um, they had previously, uh, you know, car companies have previously said 50% by 2030. Um, the EPA had said that now they're pushing it up even more. These, uh, are completely separate by the way, from the department of transportation's fuel efficiency standards, which are, uh, you know, the, uh, cafe standards that came from the Obama administration, um, which have had all these perverse effects of encouraging manufacturers to build really big cars because their efficiency requirements are related to the size of the vehicle. So with a bigger car, it's not as strict, um, which is part of the reason we see uh, this huge surge in SUV sales and basically the death of uh, American sedans. Um, but the, uh, uh, the EPA's order is so uh, out there uh, if you compare with the Department of Energy, which has its independent sort of statistical arm, so this is not run by political appointees, they're just people who are uh, crunching the numbers for the government, uh, they looked at um, sort of long-term projections of EV adoption. And what they, what they were projecting, and this is a report from March, uh, so it's not like this was years ago, um, but it's before the EPA's announcement. They were projecting... Uh, that the adoption rate of electric vehicles would be um, uh, in the in the highest possible scenario. It would be twenty eight and a half percent by twenty fifty. And the EPA said yesterday said said the other day that it wants EVs to be sixty seven percent by twenty thirty two. Um, so they're not even on the same planet. And uh, and I, I think it's just completely uh, you know and 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 the other part of this is. As conservatives have been saying all along, where is all this extra electricity going to come from? Because at the same time that they want to increase our reliance on electricity for transportation, they also want to uh, do the, uh, you know, the uh, electricity transition to renewables uh, on the generation side of things. And this same government report that was projecting out the electric vehicles. Uh, basically says that we're going to make up the difference with solar because uh, wind power has kind of been a disappointment, uh, uh, and 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 you can tell they're and you can tell that they're they're being uh, you know they're not green ideologues. They they still say there's going to be an increase in oil and natural gas, um, you know, natural gas powered uh, power plants and and things like that. Um, so so they're not they're not completely anti fossil fuels. Um, but they basically say, yeah, we're, we're, we're sort of betting everything on solar. And, uh, also, uh, you know, we're going to have these, these government mandates about, um, how many cars, uh, how many, uh, you know, non-electric cars can be sold. And so, uh, this is, this is not, this is not a good plan. Uh, it's, it's, it's very unlikely to work. Uh, there's basically two kind of ways that this was probably going to go down. One is it will just crash and burn and be a disaster. But the more likely one actually is probably uh, this is something that uh, 
um, uh, Ryan Young at uh, Competitive Enterprise Institute was talking about. He's like, this will probably be like the new Real ID Act, where the the, the deadline will just keep getting bumped back every two years. Oh, now it'll be you know 2035. Oh no, never mind, never mind, 2038. Um, and so, uh, so, so Dominic, what, what what do you make? And um, you, you might think this the, the car makers are are two two in the, the tank, no pun intended, with with the government. <laughs> On this, but you know, the the uh, car people say, well, you know, uh, this is too aggressive. But look, China—they're going all electric. Europe is going all electric. We we just can't be left behind here um, in this this gas-powered uh, vehicle uh, island when it's it's clear which way the wind is blowing. Well, if it was just a matter of which way the wind was blowing in global markets, you wouldn't need the EPA to mandate it. Um, I think that uh, you know EVs are going to become more popular. That's true. Um, uh, but the idea that, uh, that, that you need, uh, that you need this, uh, the government to speed it along, um, is, is not. And, and I think the, uh, uh, the point about China is important as well, because currently China is leading the way on making actual affordable electric vehicles. And so, uh, you know, because, and part of the reason for that is that electric vehicles are easier to manufacture than uh, than 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 gasoline-powered ones, and so it plays into their comparative advantage of uh, lower-skilled labor. Um, and so, uh, you know, th- this is not something that is going to help us out. I, I think, you know, it, it also is going to put, and then you know, you mentioned the Europeans as well. Uh, it's going to further increase the relationship between Europe and China because. Um, they have, uh, you know, Germany especially has had far uh, less of a sort of uh, uh, awakening to the uh, threat that China poses. And so, and that's putting it charitably. So, um, uh, you know, it, it could help to sort of uh, uh, create a uh, more of a tentative economic alliance between China and Europe. Um, so that's sort of a geopolitical calculation that we should also keep in mind. So, Maddie, extra question to you. Going back to Title IX, the rule from the Biden administration will be remembered as the moment when we accepted males and female sports, with some exceptions, but this is where the tide uh, just became uh, unmistakable and irreversible or ultimately will not stand. Uh, I think the former, and as far as I'm aware, this is the, the first sort of official position that they've taken on it um so for that reason it is it is significant and will be difficult to undo once uh once completed all right that's depressing mbd i agree with maddie uh, all right dominic <laughs> uh yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna agree with maddie as well oh great okay I, i'm gonna say the latter i'm gonna say eventually republicans will win the uh, the presidency again maybe in 2024 and this rule will get reversed, and there'll be a lot of resistance, uh, a lot of re- resistance um, to it because it is so man- manifestly defies common sense and human nature. So, on that optimistic <laughs> note, from me all alone, see, I'm a Tim Scott guy. I'm not uh, <laughs> yeah. all, all dire and apocalyptic like you guys. Uh, we'll give a quick plug for NR Plus, digital subscription service at nationalview.com, your way around a meter paywall, your way. If you sign up and log in to see 90% fewer ads, especially the most obnoxious and annoying ads, magically 
disappear your way to get deeper into our community. If that's something you desire, you can comment on our articles and blog posts. You can get invited to exclusive calls and events with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. So a great deal all around. And arguably most importantly is a really crucial way to support our valuable journalism. So if you're not already a member, please become one today, tomorrow, the day after, and join tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers, excuse me, as a member of NR+. So let's hit a few other things before we go. It's just April MBD, and you're already appreciating one of the greatest inventions and technological advances in human history, modern air conditioning. Yeah, I mean, listen, I just, every year, it's like a reminder. The mid-April... It's a strange time of the year, so it could be snowing, or it could be, as it might be today, almost 90 degrees. And, um, you know, we went and flipped from heat to air conditioning in the last week, um, and I'm just so thankful for this modern invention. <laughs> like, along with modern plumbing, these are the two things I wouldn't give up in a technological, uh, you know, a, a Butlerian jihad against technology. Uh, just... You've got to keep plumbing and modern air conditioning. These are the things that make life worth living in much of the world. And, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say it. So, Maddie, you attended some notable Eastern uh, Easter services and festivities? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I love I love Easter. It's uh, possibly my favorite holiday, actually. And uh, my parents were staying with us, and we... Uh, did the Easter vigil, which was which was long, and the music was beautiful. And then um, my parents also brought with them some British chocolate, which is far superior to really? American chocolate. Yeah, Why? I don't know. I don't know what you guys do to so your both, chocolate. Both but tea and chocolate. Yeah, your chocolate wow. is just atrocious. I'm sorry. Right. All right. Um, yeah, so but <laughs> but uh, British made Cadbury's and Galaxy chocolate is just the best. So I may have put on a few pounds, but it was it was worth it. Dominic, you also had a great Easter. Yeah, uh, I um, uh, I play organ at my church, and so uh, it's always fun to go from Good Friday when everything is you, very. You, you play the organ? Yes, yes. I didn't know that either. Yes, yes, I play the organ at my church, and uh, it's always fun uh, Easter weekend to go from the more subdued and flute stops and things on uh, on Good Friday. Uh, to then go to the joyous uh, celebration on Easter Sunday, get to uh, pull out some stops and buttons that you don't get to use the rest of the year uh, for some. So of you really play organ then, because sometimes people say they play organ, but they just play the organ like it's a piano. But if you're talking about stops, you you know what you're doing. <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah, I started <laughs> learning during uh, I started learning during COVID, so I've, I've played piano for a long time before then, and then uh, started learning during, wow. during COVID. So what's fun. what's a stop for the uninitiated? Uninitiated. Uh, they're the little uh, uh, like uh, uh, buttons that you pull out in order to change the sound of the of the instrument. Oh. So yes. and you can do multiple ones at the same time and layer them on top of each other and all that kind of stuff. So impressive. So I just have another um, uh, documentary I've been looking at and listening to on YouTube. Simon Shama, the great um, art critic and historian. This. Uh, series he did years ago on the greatest masters in, in Western art, and it's truly extraordinary, and I highly recommend it. With that, it's time for our editor's picks, MBD. 
What's your pick? Uh, my pick is a piece on our site today called The Myth of Inclusive Ballet. Uh, it's a piece pick. by... Uh, <laughs> uh, well, you see, every, everyone at NR loves uh, Abigail Anthony, who was with us for a time last year and is still studying at Princeton University. She's, I think, one of the more forceful uh, young writers on the scene. And, um, yeah, just gives uh, a, a right kicking to the idea of trans-inclusive ballet or inclusive ballet at all. It's, a, it's, a, it's an art form built on hierarchy and distinction. So, Maddie, do you want to double down on that, or you have an alternative? No, I'm, I'm going to double down because I, I really thought it, it, it was excellent. And, um, and she's also speaking from lived experience because Abigail Anthony is herself a ballet dancer and, in fact, was doing ballet professionally before university. So she knows that there's a lot of even females that don't qualify to be female uh, ballet dancers. So the idea that uh, a big clumsy man, um, not to be harsh, but that is what he looks like. <laughs> in the videos um, that he should qualify is just ridiculous and unfair. Dominic. Uh, well, the existence of William F. Buckley Jr. implies a William F. Buckley Sr. And Matthew Catnetti has a great piece in the current print issue about a biography written about William F. Buckley Sr. Uh, about his career in Mexico and how his influence on his son uh, played a role in the development of the conservative movement. So I'd recommend checking it out. So my pick is the Dan Hannon cover story on Shakespeare. It's the 400th anniversary of the first folio. Dan Hannon is an amazing guy, incredible speaker, great uh, Brexiteer, and uh, a, a profound defender of, uh, of Anglo-America and the West and, and loves Shakespeare. And this is just a, a tremendous essay. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National U podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National U Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Dominic. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Moink and the new podcast from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.